I'm Brandon. I'm Celinda. I'm Katie. I'm Bailey. And I'm Miki. Welcome back to Schools Back in Session. And today we're going to be interviewing the Dean of Education here at Lindenwood, uh, Dr. Daniel Kirk. Welcome, Dr. Kirk. Hi. Nice to have you. And we'll go ahead and jump right into it. Um, welcome to Lindenwood. I know you are a little newer here, um, so we'd just like to ask you a few questions. So where are you from? Okay, so uh, yeah, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so originally from London, as you can maybe tell from the accent, uh, but left the UK in the late 90s to start an international education adventure, which has led me here. Very nice. And how many years would you say you've been a part of the education system? Uh, like all of us, right? From birth, we're always <laughs> learning, but formal education. So I became a teacher. This is going to age me. I became a, a teacher in the UK in 1996. So what's that? I can't do the math. I was an English major. So probably about 27, <laughs> 28 years, something like that. And what inspired you to join the education system internationally? Uh, internationally, so um, so I f sort of fell into teaching, right? I did an English literature degree and um, uh, was sort of looking around what to do with it and some friends were training to be teachers and so I thought I'd give that a go. So I gave it a go and taught in the UK for a few years but I've always enjoyed travel, always enjoyed finding out about new places and new people um, and the international education uh, sector, the opportunities to teach internationally are huge. There's a global teacher shortage, so everywhere is hurting for teachers. Um, I saw an advert in a newspaper one day asking for people to go and teach in the Middle East. Um, I replied to the advert, found myself sitting in a hotel in London with the principal of the school. Uh, it was before we had internet, like widespread internet, and we all didn't have laptops and stuff, so he literally had a like a like a menu of the photos of the school and said, oh, here's where the school is. Offered me the job. I said, yes, I'll take it. Got back on a bus, back to the north of England, uh, went straight to the library to find out where the country was that I just agreed to uh, to <laughs> go to. I knew it was in the Middle East, but it was a country called Qatar, very small country in the Middle East, and I had no idea where it was, but that's where I was going, and that's what started it. Wow, that's amazing. Where, What other countries have you been to or taught at? Uh, so working-wise, as a teacher or an educator, um, so Qatar, which is in the Persian Gulf, um, the United Arab Emirates, I spent about 10 years there in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and a few other places there. Uh, Bahrain, again in the Middle East, I spent three years in Bermuda, um, which was quite a nice gig in the summer, but not so nice in the winter. It's a pretty cold island uh, in the North Atlantic. Uh, and then obviously in England, taught in England uh, as, as a new teacher. So yeah, and, and the US, I've been on faculty in, in various institutions in the so what were some of the major differences between the education systems in the countries you taught in compared to the U.S.? So it's all about context, right? So when you're teaching, certainly as a K-12 teacher, kids are kids. It doesn't matter where you are. You could be in the rural Africa. You could be in inner city Atlanta. Kids are kids. So the, the first thing that I discovered was that I could do it, right? If you're a teacher, you're a good teacher, you engage with people, you can do it wherever you are. I think the main differences are context-driven. What do they learn? The styles they learn. So, for example, in the Middle East, when I first got there, it's still very traditional. Kids sitting in rows, teacher at the front, writing on the board. We all copy. We all learn it. We move on. Uh, whereas the UK in particular, and the US as well was much more developmental in terms of their learning styles, right? So kids were a little bit more self-paced. It was a little bit more interactive. So really the context drove it. Resources as well. Schools look very different. 
Um, you know, we still put kids in a box, right, and expect to put 30 kids in a box and a teacher at the front and them learn. We, we should never, ever do that ever again, but we still keep doing it. But the, the differences in ways learning happens in different spaces. So, um, you know, the Middle East, I say, was very traditional. US and the UK are a little bit more fluid in terms of the way that learning happens. So I think the main differences really are just the place, the curriculum, the political and cultural landscape in which you teach are different. But other than that, stick a good teacher in front of 30 people anywhere in the world and they'll do a good job. And what made you interested in becoming a researcher of educational policy? Yeah, so an interesting year in my life. I took a, a step out of sort of education, like, uh, you know, f in terms of the classroom teacher position or faculty. I had an opportunity to work for the government of Abu Dhabi, uh, which is the government of the UAE. Um, they needed someone to look at education policy. They were trying to develop their education system, their K-12 and higher ed. Someone approached me if I'd be interested. I said, yep. So I spent a year stuck behind a desk writing education policy um, and uh, proposals that I then had to deliver to the leadership of the country. So we'd meet with the seat of the education minister and prime minister and others and develop these ideas. And some of them, you'd open a paper a few months later and read a news article and suddenly they're implementing an idea that you'd come up with. That was pretty cool, quite exciting. 90% of the time, they just said, OK, that sounds nice and nothing ever happened, but hey, that's life. It was good, but it, it cemented in my life that I don't want to sit behind a desk for the rest of the rest of my career. So I did it for a year. That was about enough and went straight back into uh, teaching at the university level after that. So it was fun. It was good to see the policy side, but you have to have a particular mindset to want to do that forever because it is pretty sort of you know sitting on your own research-based. Awesome. Um, can you tell us some of the pros and cons? of teaching abroad would you suggest it to future educators yeah, yeah. um can you tell us a little bit about 100%. that 100 so i'm a huge advocate for people going overseas for ex experiences whether that be as teachers or in other ways i'm trying to convince my 16 year old daughter to do a gap year between university and finishing up high school which is very common in britain uh, we do that she's down in georgia not so much not so common down there but we'll figure that out um so i think the pros are you get to travel you get to see the world, you experience different cultures, not just as a tourist, you're embedded there, particularly if you're teaching because you're in the community, you're working with kids from that community, you get to know the parents and the families and so on. So that's pretty cool. You get to choose where you go. No one forces you to go and work in Bermuda. You make a choice to do it. So again, there's a lot of options. The cons, it depends. I mean, tr family. So you're a long time away from family. Uh, I left England in 1999, never lived there since. So I've still got my parents and my brother and my sister and so on. So as you get older, and family become more important and I have my own children and their grandparents are halfway around the world. That's hard. So missing out on family events, friends, weddings, things like that. But things have got better with technology. You can FaceTime into a wedding if you want to. Um, but uh, and, and, you know, just uns being unsettled. If you're the sort of person that doesn't mind getting on a plane with a suitcase, stepping off the plane, knowing no one and diving in, great. If you're a little bit more maybe um, shy or withdrawn and it takes you a little bit of time to get comfortable with people, it can it can take some time to adapt. The beauty of doing it as a teacher though is you're walking into a ready-made set of friends because everyone in that school is in, in the same position or has been in the same position as you, so it's a very good support network. Um, but I would encourage all of you to think about it, either just to travel or, you know what, head off to somewhere really nice and sunny like Dubai. They pay a lot of money, pay off your student loans for a couple of years, you'll always find a job back home. So, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to think about that. 
Wow, that's incredible. How, um, kind of going back to it, because mm. whenever we introduce you, you are, are obviously the dean of the College of Education and Human Services. Yep. What led you to want to become a dean at a university? Never wanted to become a dean at a university. <laughs> I, ne I never wanted to become a principal. I never wanted to do half the administrative jobs that I've done. But as you get further into your career, a few things happen, right? Firstly, you see things around you that you think, you know, I need to fix this or someone needs to fix this. Or I could do that maybe in a different way, not in a negative way. You don't look at people and say, you're terrible at your job. I want to do your job. But you just have different ways, different approaches. As your experiences grow and you grow, you'll want to share those, those experiences and those ideas, but also try it out. Think, okay, could I do that? So I, I was approached to, be, to start a new, when I was a faculty member, I was approached to start a new department. I was an assistant professor, I think, at the time. And I said, no way, happy just doing my teaching. Sort of got convinced into it. Once you dip, dip your toe into that administrative side of things, A, it sort of sucks you in because it can be all-consuming and take a lot of your time. But also, if you enjoy it and you have some sort of aptitude for it, people will keep knocking on your door and giving you more and more things to do. And that's how I've got here. <laughs> people keep knocking on your door and saying, could you, could you? Because you want to, because you're a professional, because you're interested in it, you say yes and it leads you that way. So I never woke up one morning and said, hey, I want to be a dean. Um, I've always said as I've got further into my career and as an, as an administrator at more and more senior levels, if something suddenly changed tomorrow and someone flicked the light off and I had to leave the room, I'd go back to teaching in a K-12 classroom every day of the week. It was the best job in the world. And I sort of missed that side of it. So be careful what you do and what you wish for. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that happen naturally through a career. Um, so yeah, that's how I, how I ended up here. How did you um, go from, like it, you said that you wanted to, if you could, go back to a K-12 setting. Mm -hmm. I know that you said that you were an English major, and then you also said that um, you also got a master's in special education. Yeah. Where exactly would you end up if you could go back to a classroom? Oh, good question. Um, I, so, I, so in England, we don't teach by grade level. So in England, you teach secondary school. Um, and what that means is, um, you know, I could teach first grade. I, uh, first period could be seventh graders. Second period could be 12th graders. Third period could be ninth graders. So we teach across the secondary. So I'd probably want to go back to that model. So I, I'm not actually a big fan of teaching a specific grade level. I like teaching the breadth. So I'd probably go back to teaching secondary school language arts in a British school somewhere warm. Um, so how did your teaching abroad experiences and admin experiences mm. and all that like affect, how would that affect into your classroom if you were to teach everything we do right impacts our teaching whether you know you might go on vacation over spring break and have a really great experience somewhere and you bring that back and that informs your teaching because you share it with the kids you you know have learned new ways of doing things or a new approach i just think experience generally informs us as teachers now international teaching informs us in different ways you get very mindful of, of cultures of you know language issues of different religions uh, of different um, you know social norms and traditions um i don't know if you ne i necessarily bring it overtly into my classroom i do at the higher ed level because i used to uh, teach courses maybe i do on here on international and comparative education where we look at different school systems around the world how they're similar how they're different and i can do that using examples from my own background so that informs it but i think you know you could walk down the street and have an experience that is just as impactful for you as a teacher in the classroom as someone who's lived halfway around the world for half their life 
So I think it's all a matter of how you as an educator absorb the world around you. And that's what you need to be doing. All of you need to be doing that. I'm looking at you all around this table now. You all need to be doing that. This is an experience that you can absorb, right? It just becomes part of growing as a professional educator. And then um, I know you touched on it a little bit. You said the classroom setting in the Middle East and in uh, the UK and the US are a lot different. Mm -hmm. um, so how would you say your teaching style kind of shifted from those different environments? Um, I think it became a lot more fluid. Um, you know, when you teach in different sections of the world, because it's context-driven, it's different curricula. It's, okay, I'll give you an example. Give me an example. Right? So I was teaching in Doha in 1999. Uh, at the time, I mean, I don't know if you follow soccer, they just held the World Cup, so it was on the world stage. When I went there, it was a small little town. Nothing much going on. Two bars and a rugby club was my social life. That was about it. Um, and um, not on a school night, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so I was suddenly teaching a group of kids. Many of them are expats, so many of them from the UK, Northern Europe, but some, some local students who are Qatari, so Arab students as well. And I remember using an example that had a picture of uh, a British village in the winter covered in snow. I'd used this a dozen times before in England, no problems. These kids had never seen snow. They might have seen pictures of snow, they might have even seen snow on TV, but the concept of snow was something abnormal to them. They'd never felt it, they'd never seen it in real life. To them it was just sort of a colour scheme on a picture. And so I, I, I assumed they had this knowledge, this understanding of what snow was. I cracks on with the lesson. Um, and at the end it became apparent that they didn't really get it. And they didn't get it, not because of the way I taught, um, that's what I'm telling myself, not because of the way I taught, but because they didn't, really understand snow and we were talking about a piece of literature that needed them to understand the, the cold, the feeling of snow, the way it interacts with heat and that sort of stuff. They just didn't get it. So I became very interested then in how context in curriculum documents is presented and I ended up doing some work with the, the Cattery Ministry of Education because they would just import all their textbooks, mainly from Western Europe and North America. Well, you've got kids sitting there, you know, in a small village in the desert looking at pictures of a yacht club, trying to make assumptions around it. Well, you know, it's just not working. So how we contextualise. So I think I learnt, really long answer to your question, I know, but I think I learnt how to contextualise the materials we use to the, to the kids' needs, not the other way around. That was a really amazing story. I was just wondering, what was your favourite experience about teaching abroad? Oh, um, so many... So many, so many opportunities for travel, not just travel myself, but travel with the kids. So I went on a lot of great school trips, took to kids to school groups to Kenya, to Switzerland, to the Maldives, to Mauritius, you know, all over the place. Um, I think, I don't know if I have a single experience to hang my hat on. I would just say the experiences of being able to be accepted into a culture and a society and a community as an educator is pretty powerful wherever you are. And, um, and yeah, so I think that was pretty good. If you had to choose any country or school district to go return back to, do you have a favourite? Mm, that's a hard one. There's a lot of places I haven't been yeah. that I'd quite like to go to. Um, I th you know, I'm getting to the point in my career where I'm actually looking at retirement rather than, <laughs> rather than, <laughs> rather than, than going more places. the world again. But I think, you know... I think finding somewhere where you're comfortable is really key. Um, it's a big world out there. 
Um, some people are comfortable never going more than 20 miles from their home. Other people are comfortable the other side of the world. Um, so if it's fine in somewhere I'd be comfortable, I think. Somewhere where I can do good work, enjoy it, but maybe it's not minus three degrees outside like it is this morning. <laughs> yeah, for sure. How would you suggest for someone to start um, going into study abroad? Like, what would the first step be if I wouldn't join tomorrow or when I graduate in May? Be brave and just do it. I mean, I, there's no magic source to this. It's just do it, right? It's just being able to say, you know what, I want to try it, I'm going to do it. The worst that will happen is you do it and you don't enjoy it. And there's always an airplane ride back home. Um, and that doesn't have to be at the end of the year. I've worked in schools where people come over um, and halfway through the semester they know it's just not working for them, it's not working for the school, and you have a mutual understanding and you, you, you head back home. The beauty you guys have at the moment is there's such a global shortage of teachers. You could walk out of this door and get a job in St Charles School District, you know, almost overnight because of the shortage, or in Melbourne School District in Australia. They're all needing teachers. The, one bit of, the only bit of advice I'd maybe give is don't rush into it. A lot of schools, particularly the good schools and good US schools overseas, and there are thousands of them linked to embassies and other US uh, organisations, they often require one or two years teaching experience. So do that here. Get that initial couple of years under your belt. You'll never learn faster in those years as a teacher, so find a good school district here to do that. Um, and then just always look over the horizon. There's always something new. doesn't mean you have to go there, but always look over the horizon. There's always something new to explore, to think about. Even just thinking about moving into international teaching is something that has benefit because you're going to explore other ideas. I went overseas saying I'm going to go for a year, pay off some student loans and go back to England. So that was 1999. I've not been back since. So just, you know, just enjoy it. Whatever you're doing, enjoy it. Um, I have a question. Since mm. all of us are going into student teaching next semester, yeah. what is a piece of advice that you would give us? <laughs> um, it's, it, it's hard, right? It's going to be the, where the rubber hits the road. It's where what you've worked so hard for becomes real. So you have to embrace it. You have to enjoy it. But you also have to understand, you're, in the eyes of those kids, you're the teacher. So, um, you know, make sure you draw on all of the supports you have around you, your colleagues in the building, the teacher down the hall, your colleagues in your programme, your faculty. Everyone is there to make it successful. But just understand it's not going to be perfect, right? It's okay to fail. It's okay to really bomb delivering a lesson as long as when you walk out of that, you go, you know what, what, what went wrong and what went well and learn from that. And just do the best you can, because that's all we expect of you at Lindenwood. It's all those kids in front of you expect is for you to be the best you can. And, and you will be. And you will be. So, but, you know, go enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirk, for being with us here today. It was amazing to hear about your experience. Yeah, yeah of course. Do you guys have any final words you would like to say? Thanks for coming. Oh, we really right. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> I'll do it again whenever you like. <laughs> Thank you.